Today, if you're following along closely and you saw that sermon bumper there, you saw that uh, the kingdom falls, and you're like, wait, Pastor, I'm reading with you every week. That's six, that's 17. We're on week 16. You're right. We're combining week 16 and week 17 this week, and, uh, and so I want you to fasten your seatbelts. We've got a lot of ground to cover as I combine these two weeks. But I want to tell you, I have three theological degrees, and I'm learning more going through this. I'm able to put more pieces together, reading chronologically through. Haley, will you hand me the story there? I meant to bring it up. If you don't have a copy of this, thank you. If you don't have a copy of this, please stop by and get a copy of this. Reading it right now is especially helpful because when you're reading the historical data in First and Second Kings, and, and then you're reading Chronicles, and then later you go and read the prophets. The Bible wasn't arranged chronologically. It's put in segments And it's hard to find out, well, when this prophet is prophesying, what king does it go with? And we don't realize that a lot of those things are happening simultaneously. And and so the story arranges them so you have the actual historical events woven into the prophecy of Isaiah or the prophecy of Jeremiah. And it's so helpful to put those things together. We've learned the last couple of weeks that the nation of Israel has been divided. It's been split through a civil war into the northern kingdom, into the southern kingdom. It's a divided nation. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And this period of history that we've been studying is a 208-year period of history. During that time, there were 38 kings. And the Bible records of 33 of the 38 kings, 33 of them did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Only five of the 38 kings had any inkling of their heart turned towards God. In that same 208-year period of time, God sends nine prophets to warn the people, messengers or watchmen that say to the people, your hearts have strayed from God, you're living outside of His guidelines and His blueprints, He loves you enough that He sent me to warn you because when people live outside of God's blueprints, it brings destruction on them. But the people ignored the prophets, they ignored the messengers. And they continue to do things their own way. Second Chronicles 36, 15, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them. Why? He had compassion on his people and his temple. He loved his house. He loved his people. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. God had had enough. There was no holding back. He was moved by compassion and love to continue to send messengers, but there was a point in time where the justice of God could no longer ignore the people's sin. We learned that last week that the northern kingdom that was ruled by Jeroboam at one time, he introduced idolatry to them. And after Jeroboam's reign, idolatry just continued to escalate. King after king came, and idolatry went to a whole nother level. It only got worse. And because the people refused to listen to the warnings of the prophets, God lifted his hand of protection over the northern kingdom. And the Assyrian army comes in and destroys the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom falls, and they are now being occupied by the Assyrian army. The southern kingdom is down there looking, watching all of this happen. It's kind of like when you're a kid and your parents are yelling at you and they tell you over and over again and you keep ignoring them and there's that little subtle shift in the tone of their voice that just makes you go, "Mm, now they're really serious. You know that shift in the tone of their voice. As the southern kingdom is sitting there watching, they've heard all of this, all of this. You can't live this way and it not impact you. The Assyrian army overcomes the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom all of a sudden realizes, "Mm, God must really be serious. So the prophet Isaiah 
comes to them and speaks, Isaiah 2 and 6, For the Lord has rejected His people, the descendants of Jacob, because they filled their land with practices from the east, and with sorcerers as the Philistines do. They have made alliances with pagans. Israel is full of silver and gold. There's no end to its treasure. Their land is full of war horses. There's no end to its chariots. Their land is full of idols. The people worship things they have made with their own hands. So now they will be humbled and will be brought low. Do not forgive them. Crawl into caves in the rocks. Hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. Human pride will be brought down and human arrogance will be humbled. Only the Lord will be exalted on that day of judgment. For the Lord of heaven's armies has a day of reckoning. He will punish the proud and mighty and bring down everything that is exalted. Isaiah says the Lord can no longer ignore the sin. Even though the people say it okay, God cannot pretend it's okay. So Isaiah uses the northern kingdom as an example to warn the southern kingdom. And a lot of times when God gets ready to warn us, He sends us a word, a loving word, at the right moment. And there are some of us that are here today, some of us that are watching online today. Maybe you didn't plan to be here. Maybe you decided to come at the last minute. Maybe somebody drug you here. Uh, And some people say, I get up and start preaching on things sometime, and somebody will invite a guest, and whatever I'm preaching on is is meddling in their guest business. And they're like, oh, Pastor, don't say that. My friend is here today. And and you're meddling. Look. It's not me, okay? It's God. I don't have your phone bugged. I don't know what's going on in your friend's life. Sometimes God has issues and He loves us so much that He puts us out of love in a place to hear a word that gets in our business that calls us into relationship with Him. And I believe there are people watching online today. I believe there are people that are in this room today. And this today is one of those moments. And God is saying, you're living outside His blueprints You're living outside of His design and God is trying to speak with grace today and love and say, if you will respond today, not tomorrow, not next month, not next year, if you will respond to me today, I can save your life from the destruction that comes when you live outside of my blueprint. It is no accident that you are in this room today. The southern kingdom had this unique opportunity because they saw what happened to the northern kingdom. They've seen the path. They saw where it led. Isaiah points it all out to him. And here's what happens. Predictably, Assyria said, we've taken the northern kingdom. Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. We're going to get all of Israel. So all 185,000 foot soldiers march to the south and they're going to take over the southern kingdom Uh, But there's one X factor in this whole story. There is no reason to believe that the Assyrian army, which heavily overpowers the southern kingdom, that they're not going to do the same. But there's one X factor in this story, and it's King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah is the first king since David to have his heart fully and totally engaged as a follower of God. As a result of how he lived, the favor and the blessing of God that was on his life, it extended the favor and blessing of God on the nation of Israel. Now, there's no secret code to guarantee God's favor in your life, but there are principles that you can live by that put yourself in the pathway of blessing. There are some things in life that we do that can limit the blessing of God in our life and there are other things that we can do to put ourselves in the pathway of God's blessing and I think Hezekiah's choices in this moment 
reveal for us how to put ourselves in the pathway of the blessing of God. Hezekiah goes in and he removes the idols from the land. He obeys God. He decides to do things God's way. And the Assyrians come knocking on the door and the people are terrified and their godly king steps to the podium and says in 2 Chronicles 32, 7, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us, the Lord our God is here to help and fight our battles. And the people gain confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. Now, Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, was a shrewd man. He thought, well, I will manipulate through fear this nation. will defeat the southern kingdom and never have to lift a hand. So he sends an envoy of messengers to the people, not to Hezekiah, but to the people to make an announcement to all the people of the southern kingdom. They speak in Hebrew so the people can understand. And basically, in chapter 32 there of 2 Corinthians, let me paraphrase, they say to them, have you people not been noticing what the Assyrians have done to every nation that has come against them? And when we get outside their forts and their, their cities, they start praying to their gods and sacrificing and not one single God of any other nation has ever delivered their people from the mighty Assyrian army. Your kingdom and your God is going to be no different. Don't listen to your king Hezekiah. If you will surrender, it will save your life. If you listen to Hezekiah and think your God is going to deliver you, we're going to tear you to shreds. And the people are quickened with fear. Do you hear what Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, the enemy, is doing to people? He tells them a lie about what God can do and what God cannot do. And this is what I know. For many of us in this room, there's an enemy army camped right outside our doors. The odds are impossible. It seems too difficult for God. Whatever it is, the enemy has got camped out your doors. It's too messy for God to clean up. In your mind, it looks too broken for him to put back together, too bad for him to redeem for good. And there's an enemy, a modern-day Sennacherib that is whispering in your ear, not even God can get you out of this one. Not even God can save your marriage. Not even God can rescue from that. Not even God can put those broken pieces back together again. And what happens is we often oftentimes listen to the lies of the enemy when the odds of impossibility are stacked against us instead of like Hezekiah walking in faith. But look what Hezekiah does in response to the manipulative tactics of Sennacherib. This is significant in his leadership. Second Chronicles 32.20, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. The king and the prophet, in a moment of desperation and dependency, call upon God to rescue them. The enemy is outside our door, God. You must help. And I love the next verse, verse 21. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated the fighting men and the leaders and officers in the camp of the Syrian king, so he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. The end. No fight, no war, no battle. God sends an angel uh, uh, and takes care of 185,000 soldiers. King Hezekiah, because he had positioned himself to live in the pathway of the blessing of God, he was able to stand in the face of the enemy and say, People, be strong and courageous. 
He is the arm of the flesh, but we have the arm of our God. And even though there's 185,000 times two arms of the flesh, all our God has got to do is reach one finger down here and take care of this whole thing. So just rest. When you walk in life in a way that walks and invokes the blessing of God on your life, there is a confidence that comes that this all may be stacked against us, but if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. So what was it that caused God to spare the southern kingdom? I mean, the odds were even worse in the south than they were against the northern kingdom, Hezekiah. Well, what was it about Hezekiah's life that caused God to listen, that caused God's favor to be with him? If you keep reading, um, you'll find out that Hezekiah, the scripture says that that the entire lifespan of Hezekiah, that the protection of God remained on the southern kingdom, that his favor and his blessing was there. And the southern kingdom eventually fell, but not until after Hezekiah died. It was like Hezekiah's life brought on the blessing and the favor. No, there's no magic formula, but there was something Hezekiah did that put Israel in the pathway of God's blessing. Let me point out just a couple. First, Hezekiah was committed to purity. It marked his reign as king. He wanted to purify his own life and the life of the people. And unlike the kings before him, he said, we're going to purify the temple. We're going to get rid of this idolatry. We're going to remove any remnant of idolatry from the land. We're going to purify this place. Second Chronicles 29 and 3. The first month of the first year, I mean right at the beginning of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. So somebody had shut down the church. And they're worshiping these idols. He brought in the priest and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east side. He said, listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our parents were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook Him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on Him. Isaiah said, a generation ago they didn't do it right. But we're going to turn this thing around. He removed from the temple the things that were offensive to God, reopened the doors for people to come in and worship. Purity is not a word that we talk a lot about today. Purifying our hearts and purifying our temple invites the blessing and the favor of God in our life. But few people want to talk about purity today. They will say any conversation about purity is judging them or being legalistic. But what many of us want is we want to be blessed by God, but we don't want to live in the brokenness that is necessary for purification. Part of the challenge for us is that our standard of purity isn't what it should be. We don't even realize that there are offenses of impurity in our heart because we have lowered the standard so much in the church. We've lowered the standard so much in our culture. And we're so busy comparing ourselves to other believers and busy comparing ourselves to our world that we've gotten used to living with these offenses of impurity in our life. And we can find somebody to compare ourselves all the time that make us feel like those impurities are okay. But our comparison ought to be the word. Our comparison ought to be the backdrop of the holiness of God. That's the only comparison that we ought to be making in our lives. I recently read about, uh, read about the Food and Drug Administration's purity standards for the food that we eat. And it was so disturbing that I didn't want to be disturbed alone. I thought I would read it to you. So here's the FDA's standard for apple butter. And I love apple butter. 
Some people don't even know what it is, and some people don't like it, but I love apple butter. Any of you that have had apple butter like it, you'll be glad to know that if the mold count is 12% or more, if it averages four rodent hairs per 100 grams or more, if it averages five or more whole insects per 100 grams, the FDA will protect you from it. Otherwise, it's fine on your buttermilk biscuit. (laughs) Coffee beans. Coffee beans will get withdrawn from the market if an average of 10% or more are insect infested. Or if there's one live insect in each of two or more immediate containers. Mushrooms. The FDA said they can be sold if there's an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams of dried mushrooms. Fig paste. I don't even know what fig paste is, but if there are more than 13 insect heads per 100 grams of fig paste in each of two or more subsamples, the FDA has ruthlessly will toss it from the shelf. And then hot dogs. It's, it's bad. It's bad. Hot dogs are the worst, and I know some of you are going to eat them, and I'm going to the ballpark today. So I'm going to spare the details about the hot dogs. But here's my point. We like to think that the standard of purity is pretty high when it comes to the food we eat. But when we hear that it's not, we just come to accept it. Chances are you're still going to eat your apple butter and your hot dogs and your mushrooms. Even though we find out the standard of purity is not as high as we thought it should be. And, and for some of us... The standard of purity in our own lives need to be re-examined against the backdrop of the Word. Ephesians 5 tells us to be washed in the Word and allow His Word to cleanse us from impurity or unrighteousness. 1 John, John says there that the way that we are purified is through Jesus. We don't purify ourselves today through rituals like they did in the Old Testament. We purify ourselves through surrender to Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and do what? Purify us from all impurity, from all unrighteousness. In other words, if like Hezekiah, we go into the temple of our hearts and we take the things that defile and the things that offend God and we take those things in the dark and we bring them out into the light. We open the doors of the temple and we drag those defiled things out of the temple of our hearts. We confess them. We put them in the light. He is faithful and just to cleanse us. He will purify us. And if we will surrender ourselves to Him, He will do what we cannot, what the law cannot, what no one can do for us. He will purify us. But until we do that and seek Him to purify our hearts, it's a little presumptuous for us to go to God and ask God for His blessings in our life when we continually choose to walk in a way when there are known offenses in our heart to God. When there are known impurities that we have just assumed God's going to be okay with this. That's what Israel did. The prophet spoke, warned lovingly, deal with this, deal with this. I love you, here's time. Deal with this, deal with this. But somewhere along, the purity standard was lowered and they said, well, God hadn't really acted. He's just like that mom talking. He's not really that serious. And eventually his justice responds. 
My question is, what's between you and God right now? What is it that needs to be addressed? What, is, what impurity is robbing you of intimacy in your relationship with God? What impurity is creating distance in your prayer life? What impurity is creating distance in, between you and the Lord? Sometimes we, we think He really doesn't care about all this other stuff. It's no big deal. Everybody else is doing it. But impurity inhibits our intimacy with Him. If you look at verse 26, you actually read in that same 32nd chapter that Hezekiah was a man, a pride crept into his heart. But he, was, he, he humbled himself before the Lord in repentance and God responded to his humble prayer of repentance. So here you have a man committed to purity, a man willing to humble himself and walk in repentance and God responded. I don't know what it is with me or you and God's got to search our hearts. But is it pride? Is it, is it selfishness? Is it an attitude, an activity, or a habit? Maybe, maybe the purity standard in your life has been lowered because you've made compromises in the music that you listen to and you feel your brain's not that big a deal. Or maybe it's in the things you watch. Maybe, maybe you, you let your heart be washed by the Word. There's some things that you ingest from the DVR or a magazine description, uh, a subscription. Maybe there's some things in your life that maybe you say... When I wash it against the word, there's some things in my life that are not planting purity in my heart. Maybe it's a secret sin that needs to be confessed to a trusted brother or a trusted sister. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, or his ear uh, too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. It's not that He can't save. It's not that He won't hear, that He's not able to hear. But our sins, our impurities have created distance. It, is, we, it has threatened our intimacy with God. So Hezekiah is committed to purity. He's committed to repentance. But here's something else he committed to that brought the favor of God on Israel. He was committed to prayer. 185,000 Assyrians were knocking on his door and Isaiah and Hezekiah prayed in desperation. And maybe that's one of the reasons why we don't have the hand of God move upon us like we should is because our prayer lives are not filled with desperation and dependency. It is amazing to me that when calamity strikes our lives or our nations, people all of a sudden turn up the prayer notch a lot. But what we don't realize, friend, is that we are desperate and dependent in between calamities. We need God in between calamities. And we will never become a praying people. We will never become the praying church that God has called us to be until we become desperate and dependent and understand our need for Him. Purity. Repentance and prayer. If Hezekiah's life was a pattern to put yourself in the pathway of God's blessing, what happened after Hezekiah is a pattern of how to invoke the judgment of God. Hezekiah dies. His son Manasseh becomes the king. He didn't follow in the footsteps of his father. He rejected his spiritual heritage. And he goes back putting the idols in that Hezekiah cleaned out. He erects uh, uh, things to worship Baal that Elijah dealt with at Mount Carmel. He goes to put all that stuff back. He even sacrificed one of his sons, burned him alive to one of these idols. This is the king of God's people. He's an evil king. And so God allows Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to come in. The hand of provision and protection is lifted. 
And Nebuchadnezzar comes in and through three different sieges, he begins to take the people of God captive. And, and the people of Israel, the Jews, are dispersed all over the Babylonian Empire. Some of them are taken into Babylon. And that's where we'll read next week the story of Daniel is written in exile. But there was one man that was left behind. And there were some of the people left behind. On the third siege, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys Jerusalem, ransacks the temple, and all that is is laid waste. And there's just a few people that is left behind, and there's a man of God left behind in the ruins of the remnant of people still in Jerusalem, and his name is Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. And God calls Jeremiah to prophesy to the people, if you ever hope to see the nation of Israel restored, I know the temple is laid waste, I know that we are destroyed, but listen to me, if you ever expect God to put these broken pieces back together, turn back to Him. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he wasn't there condemning them. He wasn't there with hellfire. He was coming there pleading with tears in his eyes, Please, prodigals, come home. Please, people of God, come back. He wants to bless us. He wants to favor us. But He's so holy, He cannot bless sin. But if we will just turn our hearts, His blessing and favor will come. But the people didn't listen to Jeremiah, just like they didn't listen to the prophets before him. In Jeremiah 2 and 9, Therefore, God says, I will bring charges against you. I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look, send to Kadar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? And they are not even gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God encapsulates the sin of the entire nation of Israel under one umbrella, worthless idols. They were guilty of idolatry. Now you can find all these little bitty sins, but what Jeremiah is saying is they all dig their way back to the one sin of idolatry. You say, Pastor, I don't have an idolatry problem. I have a lust problem. I will tell you your lust problem is an offspring of worshiping the idol of sexual pleasure. And every sin that we could identify in our life, greed or whatever, it ultimately weaves its way back to some idol in our life that we worship. And when we worship it in some way, it it manifests itself in some specific sin in our life. And Jeremiah is pleading with them to turn away from their false gods. In this verse, he uses a metaphor to explain their idolatry. And I think that metaphor will help us. He refers to a spring of living water and he refers to a cistern. There's a difference between a well and a cistern. A well digs down until you reach the aquifer and there's a spring of water from within that well that comes up out of that well to satisfy. A cistern is a hole that is dug in the ground and bricks or mortar or plaster are put around it and you catch water that rains. It stayed dry six months out of the year and they dug cisterns in the ground in hopes of catching rainwater to drink in the dry season. The problem is when they would make cisterns, there would often become cracks in them or holes in the bottom and the water would drain out. When there was water in them, it was stagnant water. 
it would, it would quench their thirst, but it would not fully satisfy them. And God uses this image of a well versus a cistern and said, Israel, why when you have a well of life-giving water that will never run dry, why would you say no to that well and create cisterns that you've built with your own hands that get cracks in it that only hold stagnant water that might satisfy you a little while but will never fulfill you. Why have you traded a spring of living water, me, God says, for cisterns that you have made with your own hands? God equates their idolatry for digging cisterns that hold stagnant water that eventually get cracks and they eventually run dry. They're search, they're, they're digging, they're working feverishly to try to get water. I mean, there's this, there's this a sad search. Archaeologist has said that, that there are thousands of cisterns in these lands where the people were digging cisterns trying to find water. And, and he uses that imagery of the sad search in his people who dig and burn their energy seeking and searching for something that will never, ever satisfy. So maybe instead of looking for comfort from God, we turn to the cistern of of what we eat or entertainment, or instead of looking for God to comfort we, we, or, or, or for significance from Him, we look to our career or our accomplishments. Or instead of looking to God for security, we look to our money or our investments. Or instead of looking to God for joy, we try to get it fully out of our marriage or our children. Or instead of looking to God for hope, we put all of our hope in whatever legislation that is about to be passed. Or we put all of our hope in the political process. Or instead of turning to God for truth, we turn to the court of public opinion. Or we turn to academic consensus. Instead of turning to God for strength, we, we, we look at motivational books or self-help seminars. And this is what you need to know. There's nothing wrong with a lot of that stuff. In and of themselves, they are fine. And God even uses those things to help us. The problem is that we often quit looking to them for help and we start looking to them for hope. And when we put our hope in those things, good things become God things and we create cisterns that will never hold water. Like the people of old, we can reject living water for broken cisterns. A number of years ago, America Online, AOL, made a huge mistake. They had 650,000 searches they released to the public. They took off the names and assigned a number to them, thinking that by assigning the number, they would protect the identity of the people who use their search engines. And they just wanted to do a study of what are people searching for. Are they searching for the cost of trucks or how to get game tickets or how to decorate their houses? I mean, so they had all of these things. They assigned a number and released them. And the New York Times later came out that there were some technical people who were gifted that uh, uh, AOL didn't see. They were able to take those search results and trace them back to the person who searched for those items. They found out where they lived, where their kids went to school, what kind of car they drove, simply by looking at what they searched for. Whatever you're searching for reveals your identity. If you're digging and digging and digging, trying to find life in these cisterns that are created with your own hands, that man has created, that crack and eventually run dry, whatever you're searching for reveals a lot about who you are. It is exhausting way to live, and it will never satisfy. Think of Manasseh, Hezekiah's son. He grew up in a home where his dad really loved God, and I'm sure Hezekiah did everything he knew to do 
to make sure his children serve the Lord. But Manasseh rejected his spiritual heritage. This week I was in a meeting of pastors and one of the pastors in that room is over a network of leaders in Minnesota. He's a statesman. And he's a pastor to pastors. And he did the devotion. And his devotion was a list of 139 pastor's kids that are children of the men and women he serves. Those pastors that he served, they're pastor's kids that are away from God. Some of them in prison and he goes to visit them in prison. And, and he wept and the whole room was weeping because of the prodigals among those in spiritual leadership. And he had us pray for all the prodigals that we know. He had us pray for our own kids. My kids are still growing and not at the point where they're out from under my care yet, but it's in the back of your mind as a parent. You do everything you know, but God, I want my kids to serve you. This week I had a conversation with my middle son, Gavin, and I'd spent a lot of money to leave a meeting early to come back to watch one of his ball games. And he said, Dad, you shouldn't have spent that money. I said, Gavin, I want to be here. I wanted to see your games the last one of the year, possibly. And I, I just wanted to see it. It led into another conversation about um, some opportunities that were in front of me that were going to take some of my time. And I had removed my name from consideration for those opportunities. And, and he said, uh, would you be able to be the pastor at North Place? I said, yeah. you really be able to touch millions of people? I said, yeah. He said, why did you not do it? I said, because I'd be eight weeks a year investing in that. I, it's a four-year commitment. And during those four years, you and Caden will leave me and go to college. And if I reach millions of people, but because I'm not involved in your life, you and Caden and Addie don't serve God, I've gained the whole world and lost my own soul. I'm more concerned about the three of you making it to heaven than I am any millions of anybody else. And so... He sat there, and I, I think he got it. My heart has always, I was a prodigal. I ran from God. I lived outside the blueprints. God kept warning. I kept doing my own deal. And sooner or later, he got my attention. Jeremiah is pleading in tears to the prodigals of Israel, come home. I read a letter this week from a mom her name is Lisa, and she just basically wrote a letter to her son. He's either an older teenage or young adult son. I think her letter that was just recently written is kind of what Jeremiah was trying to say hundreds of thousands of years ago. Listen to what her letter says. I remember a boy, this is to her son, who was so eager to call me mama, who gave me spontaneous hugs and kisses, you loved to eat any and all of my food and made me feel like I was the best cook in the world. I remember your stubbornness and hope that you would use it to change the world. But instead, it's changed you. And we miss you, the real you, the one who is strong for the weak and makes everyone else feel safe. I can't help but wonder if I somehow I am to blame for the change of direction you've made as of late. Was I too strict? Was I not strict enough? Did I show you the love and grace that is Jesus? Was I too much of a hypocrite? Then I start to figure out what I would do differently if I had the chance. Would I affirm you more and correct you less? Would I discipline you and guide you more gently? I realize I'm trying to rewrite the past. And that's something that 
can never be done no matter how hard I try. And I remember that I am to forget those things which are behind and strain for what is ahead. But next, I start to worry about the now and where you are and what you're doing. And I stare at the glow of a digital alarm clock in my room and wonder where you, where you are at 1.30 in the morning and why you're not answering your phone or your texts. But here the comforter draws near me and whispers that I'm not to be anxious for nothing. You see, dear heart, you don't belong to me. You never have. Your mom and your dad gave you back to God. And I believe that he has a plan for your future and that he will finish what he started in you. And so with this letter, I write you. And I pray that you know one thing. It's very important. I pray that you know my arms are wide open. Wide open for your return. Anytime you're ready, no matter what you've done, we'll face it together. Because his arms are ready too, you know. He awaits your return. He will be dancing and spinning and celebrating with the best of them. He misses you more than I do. He paid the greatest price to know you. And every day that you're away seems like an eternity. So hurry, my son. We are waiting. Dad, Jesus, and I. We're fattening the calf. We're preparing the party. We're standing in the yard, shielding our eyes from the sun, hoping to catch a glimpse of you coming over the horizon. And that day cannot come soon enough. Arms always open. Mom. That's the heart of the prophet for God's people. It's the heart of mom or dad for her wayward or his wayward son or daughter. And I believe with all of my heart today, via that camera or being in this room, the Holy Spirit is saying, I love you. I want you. I can save your life from a lot of self-destruction. Just come I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place. Prayer team, would you make yourself available? Please be respectful of the moment, if you will. Prayer team, make yourself available, please. This is what I want you to know. This is what prayer will be today. If you are a believer who's... There's a a modern-day Sennacherib that is camped outside of your your home, your life, and he's sitting in your ear right now saying, even God cannot get you out of this one. It's impossible. Too broken, too messed up. We're ready to pray with you because we know it's just the arm of flesh. Our God can. If you're away from God today, or if you've never known him, there's a loving heavenly father, not a mean judge, a loving heavenly father that says, I love you enough. I'm going to warn you. I didn't send the pastor to the pulpit today to give you seven things to make you feel good. I came to the pulpit today with a message as the prophet of God saying he loves you. Yeah, if you live outside of his blueprints, it hurts. Some later, it comes back to bite. But today he's saying, please come home. These people are ready to pray for you. Haley and I are, will be in the back praying with guests and meeting them. But if you're a guest today, meeting us in the back is the least of importance. 
meeting with God here is of the greatest importance. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to leave it to the Lord. Even while I pray, if you need prayer because the enemy is camped outside your home or your life or your business and you need God's delivering hand, He's able. Or if you need to find mercy today to come back home, to get rid of the offenses that have separated you from God, we want to pray with you today. If you want to give your heart to Jesus for the very first time, give Him a chance. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you let your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Turn your countenance their direction today, Lord. Give us peace. Renew and reawaken our affections for you and bring our wandering hearts home. In Jesus' name.